0: Voices. There are a lot of voices out there, aren't there? So many voices in the world. We have tons of different voices vying for our attention. We have voices telling us to buy this or watch that. We have voices telling us beware of this or look out for that. We have voices on the right, voices on the left, voices calling for change, voices calling for a return to the good old days. It can be hard to know which voices to listen to and also how much credibility to give certain voices. Thankfully, we have other voices that tell us which voices to listen to, and definitely which voices not to listen to, right? And of course, I'm using thankfully tongue-in-cheek, because who knows whether those voices are voices we can trust, right? This morning, we're going to see several examples of different voices God's people listen to and choose not to listen to. We are in Acts chapter 21. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, turn to Acts 21. In our youth group, we've been working our way through Acts for the past several months. And I also know many of you women have just finished a study through the book of Acts. So hopefully this will not be too repetitive. Acts 21 begins with the words, After we had torn ourselves away from them. Obviously, that's going to need a little bit of setup. Who are we? Who are them? And why are we tearing ourselves away? Well, obviously, uh, the, we are the author of the book of Acts, Luke, and the other people he's traveling with, and they are all traveling with and in support of the Apostle Paul. Paul is, we know from the previous chapters of Acts, that Paul is on the tail end of what's become known as his third missionary journey. Now, this has been a long journey. Paul began at his home base in the city of Antioch in Syria, and He traveled throughout the regions of Galatia and Asia, visiting all kinds of house churches. And then he settled down for three years in the major port city of Ephesus. Then Paul made his way through Macedonia and ended up in Corinth, where he spent about three months. Then he started heading back home, retracing his steps, visiting many of those same churches and saying goodbye to the folks there. And for the folks in Ephesus, it was an especially tearful goodbye. Because Paul had lived with them for three years, and also because he told them that he knew this was the last time he was ever going to see them. And here's our first example of someone hearing a voice. Paul told his friends from Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 22, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So Paul says it's the Holy Spirit's voice he's been listening to. The Holy Spirit is compelling him to go to Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit has also warned him that wherever he goes, prison and hardships face him. Holy Spirit's voice is probably a pretty good one to listen to, right? Yeah. The Holy Spirit, though, uh, apparently shows us here that even the voices we should listen to don't always tell us what we want to hear. And I think we all know that's true on some level, but I kind of wonder if when we decide which voices we will listen to, we may put a little too much stock in whether we want to hear what they're saying. I don't know. Chapter 20 ends with the leaders of the Ephesian church praying with Paul and weeping with him as he and his traveling companions sail away. And that's why Luke begins chapter 21 the way he does. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Now, this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning because the uh, details of this trip, the sailing route, are super important to us. Now, you know I'm kidding, right? Because The details of the sailing trip aren't really very important to us. But this actually does serve as an important reminder to us that the Bible was not written to you and me. It was written for us, but it was not written to us initially. Luke tells us at the very beginning of Acts that he's writing this to someone in Rome named Theophilus. Theophilus was either a man with that name, or it was a name that was used to represent all the Christ followers in Rome. Theophilus means friend of God. Either way, Luke somehow knew that all the details of this sailing route between these specific islands south of Ephesus was, for some reason, important for Theophilus to know. I kind of wonder if maybe it's sort of like if I told you I went to LA and I passed through by Kettleman City and Buttonwillow on the way. Those of you who make the triple, I would go, oh, he took I 5 instead of 99. <laughs> I don't know. One thing that does seem to be significant to us, though, is that Paul and his buddies caught a ship that was big enough to sail directly across the sea south of the island of Cyprus rather than a little one that would have had to hug the coastline. That would have saved them a lot of time. Luke told us earlier that Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem in time for Passover. So now he was ahead of schedule, which gave him some time to stop and visit some other believers on the way to Jerusalem. And when he landed at the port city of Tyre, that's just what he did. And once again, there was a voice to listen to or not listen to. Verse 4, We sought out the disciples there in Tyre and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. Wait a minute. Did you notice the voice there? Whose voice was it? And whether Paul listened to it. Look at verse 4 again. Luke tells us it was the Holy Spirit's voice. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But verse 5 makes it clear that Paul completely ignored that voice. When it was time to go, we left. What the heck? So many questions. I mean, why would Paul ignore the Holy Spirit's voice? Why would the Holy Spirit contradict what it had told Paul earlier about going to Jerusalem? I mean, if it had compelled him to go to Jerusalem, why would it now say, don't go? Or was it really the Holy Spirit's voice? Or maybe if it was the Spirit's voice, did those folks in Tyre maybe just misinterpret what it said? So many questions, but let's hold on to those questions for a minute, because we're gonna hear a couple more voices. Let's read on, verse seven. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, Luke says, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. So after ignoring one warning to avoid Jerusalem, Paul keeps heading toward Jerusalem and gets yet another warning. But before we look at that warning, a quick side note about some other voices that show up here. Voices the early church listened to. Verse 9, Luke tells us that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. These women had the gift of prophecy and clearly used it. Now that, of course, should not be surprising to us. Scripture tells us that all of the spiritual gifts are available to all of us and that every single one of us is to use his or, or, his or her spiritual gifts to benefit the whole church. Now, those truths are reiterated throughout scripture, and we see the early church, including the Apostle Paul, referring to women as important co-laborers in the gospel, and, that every, and as leaders of churches, and even as fellow apostles. Yes, there is much debate about what roles women can play in the church, but it's just that, Debate. Some say it's obvious that Paul and Peter say explicitly in other passages that women shouldn't speak in church. They say anyone who believes otherwise is ignoring the clear teaching of scripture. But others say the clear teaching of the rest of scripture is that women can and do teach and even lead churches. So that Peter and Paul in those other passages must be addressing specific situations in those particular churches they were writing to. There are brilliant scholars on both sides of this issue. People who love Jesus on both sides of this issue. These are not matters of central importance. They are not hills to die on. And people who disagree with us are not taking scripture any less seriously than we are. Now, we also know from history that some of Philip's daughters lived to a very old age and contributed to very greatly to what we know of the history of the early church in that time. In fact, many scholars believe that Philip's daughters were probably some of Luke's sources for the early, church, the early chapters of Acts, telling him what happened in the early years of the church before he joined Paul on those journeys. Philip's daughters were not the only prophets in the story. Of course, of course verse 9 introduces us to a prophet named Agabus, or for those of you who just finished studying Acts, you know, he reintroduces us to Agabus, right? We first met him back in chapter 11. He foretold a great famine, and Luke tell, told us there that that prophecy came true. So we know Agabus is legit. And he does, I love this, he does a bit of performance art here, tying himself up with Paul's belt. Pretty impressive. But what's important is who this message is from. This is not about listening to Agabus's voice. He says it's the Holy Spirit who says Paul will be bound and handed over. And again, Paul says he's going to Jerusalem no matter what. So, what's the deal? Back to those questions. Is Paul ignoring the Spirit's voice? Is he being disobedient? Is the Spirit contradicting itself? Are people misinterpreting what the Spirit is saying? Now, in the case of Agabus's words here, the explanation is pretty simple. He didn't say if the Spirit said don't go to Jerusalem. The Spirit just said bad things were gonna happen in Jerusalem, and Paul already knew that, right? And he was ready for bad things to happen. But there's still the question of whether the Spirit's message is consistent. Because back in Tyre, in verse four, the message was don't go to Jerusalem. Let's quickly look at the three times we've heard the Spirit's voice here. Back in chapter 20, Paul said he was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then in 21.4, in Tyre, it was through the Spirit that they urged Paul not to go. And then in verse 10, Agabus said the Holy Spirit says the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem would bind Paul and hand him over. Again, the first and last ones there are pretty simple to reconcile. They don't directly contradict each other, and, and, and maybe the second one isn't contradictory either. Maybe the people in Tyre got the same message from the Spirit that Agabus did, and maybe it was their voices urging Paul not to go based on the Spirit's warnings of danger. But Luke doesn't tell us that. Now, that doesn't mean an explanation like that, that explanation isn't valid, but it might mean that that explanation or an explanation like that isn't necessary. We talked earlier about the fact that while the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us. It's also important to remember that the people it was written to had a very different way of seeing the world than we do. The Middle Eastern worldview was, and first of all, not the people in the first century Mediterranean world, they obviously lived in a different time and culture, but their, but their entire worldview was very different. The Middle Eastern worldview was, and in many ways still is, very communal, not individualistic like ours is, and also, All of our New Testament texts were written primarily to a Jewish audience. Even letters like this that were technically written to Gentiles were written to people and churches that saw Christianity not as a new religion, but as just the continuation of ancient Judaism. The first Gentile believers were almost all converts to Judaism first. So they were Jews, even though they were also Gentiles. And in Jewish thought, there's always been an emphasis on wrestling with the text. Things in scripture that seem like contradictions aren't seen as a threat, but as a juicy challenge. Something to be chewed on and to pondered and savored. So it's quite possible that Luke's attitude here wasn't like ours. Wait, did the Holy Spirit say this or that? It must be one or the other, right? Instead, like a typical Jew, Luke might have just thought, huh, what do you know? Spirit said, go to Jerusalem, then it said, don't go. Interesting. Now, Luke has told us about some other interesting interactions with the Holy Spirit here in Acts. Interactions that might make us a little uncomfortable. Back in chapter 15, when the leaders of the early church sent a message, a letter to all the other churches, they said, in chapter 15, 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Seemed good? Seemed? For us 21st century Westerners, that sounds like craziness. Isn't God supposed to be certain? Isn't truth black or white? Again, it helps if we can be humble about stuff like this and and try to recognize the impact our culture has on us. Sometimes, because of our culture, we get so hung up on having to have an airtight explanation for everything in scripture, that we may miss out on the beauty of the mystery our great and mysterious God wants to reveal to us. Maybe it's the mystery of how the Holy Spirit moves or, and how God speaks to us. Maybe it's the mystery of how the universe could be both billions of years old and created in six days. Trying to come up with an airtight explanation not only misses the point, it also kind of ruins the point. It gets in the way of what God's trying to reveal to us. Someone likened our need to explain everything to opening a letter from a loved one and reading beautiful heartfelt words of love and appreciation, but ignoring all of that and instead nitpicking whether every single word is factual and parsing the grammar. We can waste a lot of time parsing grammar when our amazing, mysterious God is just trying to show us how much he loves us. Okay, back to Acts 21 in our story. Whether the Holy Spirit's voice was consistent or not, Paul was determined to keep going to Jerusalem, and that's what he did. Verse 15, after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manassan, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God." So Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem, and so far so good. He's been traveling the world with the same message that started in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came on everyone. And now he gets to come back to Jerusalem and tell the leaders of the church how awesome things have been. And everyone's thrilled. And now they have an update for Paul. Verse 20 continues. When they heard Paul's news, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, "'You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses, so that when they have their heads, so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meats of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. That, by the way, is that letter that began with, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 26, the next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Paul purified himself along with them. He gave notice at the temple. He observed the days of purification and he made the appropriate offerings. We don't always notice this, but Paul and all of the early believers still saw themselves as observant Jews. They weren't setting up a new religion. They were observing Torah and saw Jesus as fulfilling Torah, simply moving Judaism to its next phase, to the Messianic Age. And we also have some more voices here. Verse 21 tells us that the Jewish Christ followers have been informed that Paul was telling Jews to essentially stop being Jews. And we're not told who had informed them, whose voice that was, but it's clear that they were listening to that voice and believing that voice. Now set aside the question of whether James and the other leaders could or should have told the people they'd been misinformed. But Paul had no problem adding another voice to the conversation, the voice of his actions, hopefully speaking louder than his critics' words. He had no problem making it clear that he was still proud to be an observant Jew, including observing the prescribed number of days for purification. So the story continues, verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. They were trying to kill him. Well, that got out of hand fast, huh? (laughs) Apparently, Paul's actions didn't speak louder than his critics' words. And talk about listening to voices. The whole city was aroused, we're told. Why? Based on whose voice? Verse 27 tells us it was the voice of some Jews from the province of Asia. These were almost certainly people from Ephesus, that major city where Paul lived and ministered for three years. Like Paul, they were likely in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Now, what's interesting is when Paul was in Ephesus, he actually had a pretty good relationship with the Jews there. He spent his first three months there teaching in their synagogue and Luke tells us that Paul persuaded them about the message of Jesus. Luke says it was only some Jews in Ephesus who opposed him, and they badmouthed him to the point that he left the synagogue and set up his own church in Ephesus. Well, it was apparently some of those Jews from Ephesus who had become so incensed with Paul, so filled with rage and hate for him, and they'd let it build and build and build. That the instant they saw him in Jerusalem, they had fire in their eyes and wanted blood. And they were about to get blood because what they accused Paul of was deadly serious. Verse 28, they said he has brought Greeks into the temple. Bringing non-Jews into the inner courts of the temple was a death penalty offense. It was so serious that Even the Roman authorities enforced it. So these guys are accusing Paul of an absolutely egregious crime. A pretty ridiculously egregious crime, if you think about it. I mean, why would Paul be so stupid as to take Gentiles into the inner courts of the temple, committing a death penalty penalty offense in broad daylight? And these guys base their accusation on what? They saw Paul with Trophimus and assumed he brought him to the inner courts of the temple. Seriously? They were going to put Paul to death based on an assumption? It is terrifying how powerful passions can be and how easily they can be manipulated. This crowd was ready to kill a man based on an assumption that he had committed a crime that no one in their right mind would be stupid enough to commit, and yet, We can find ourselves buying into stupid assumptions, ridiculous assumptions too, can't we? I mean, simply because we've been told to believe the worst about certain kinds of people. There are enormous numbers of Christians in America today who've been whipped into such a frenzy that they believe half the politicians in Washington are Satan-worshipping pedophiles. Seriously. Seriously? In this case, the crowd in Jerusalem was told that Paul was a threat to everything that was right and good and that he had to be stopped. And the crowd was all in. Now, at this point, it's tempting for us to look at that crowd and kind of roll our eyes and chuckle and say, those silly Jews, there they go again. They were always on the wrong side of history. But this is another opportunity, I believe, for us to be humble to recognize our own culture and make sure we're not practicing what some refer to as Disney princess theology. See, the Disney princess movies are crafted to make us, the viewers, put ourselves in the shoes of the heroine. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing with scripture. We see ourselves as the princess in every story. We are Esther, never Haman, or even King Xerxes. We are Peter, but never Judas. We are the woman anointing Jesus, but never the Pharisees. And here it's very tempting to see ourselves as Paul, but not the Jews in Jerusalem. But which is more like the role we play in our society today? Are we, like Paul, the upstarts trying to help our fellow believers see God in a new way? Or are we like the religious establishment fighting to keep things the way they've always been? Are we, like Paul, urging the church to open its arms to the outsiders everyone else deems dirty and unworthy? Or are we like the religious establishment pointing our fingers at the sinners and tax collectors around us? Do we see ourselves as Christ's ambassadors or his palace guards seeing threats around every corner? See, we are surrounded by voices telling us every day to be scared, very scared. There's always someone coming after us, some new threat to the gospel. In the 50s, it was the communists. In the 60s, the hippies, then the women's libbers, then the abortionists, then the gay agenda, then the government overreach, then critical race theory, and then communism again. I've got some good news for you. Do you know what is the threat to the gospel? Nothing. There is no threat to the gospel. Jesus has won. The war is over. The victory is ours. He has defeated the, power, the principalities and powers of sin and death. He has broken the chains of selfishness that want to shackle us. And how did Jesus win? By dying. The throne he ascended was a cross, an instrument of humiliating torture. And how do we win? By taking up our own crosses and dying to ourselves. If we've given our lives to Christ, we already have died to ourselves, right? We have nothing to fight for. We've already given up our rights. But we have so many voices telling us to fight for our rights, to be very, very scared because they're coming for our rights. They're coming for our churches, to defile them, to shut them down. Please. Come to think of it. If our churches can be shut down, maybe they should be shut down. Because the real church can't be shut down. The real church thrives where it's illegal. The real church is alive in Christ and no weapon formed against it can prosper. Not because we fight back, but because we don't. Jesus says people will know we're his followers by our love, not by our finger pointing and our demonizing of our enemies. If we're his followers, we love our enemies, radically. But those voices that tell us to be very, very scared are persuasive. They appeal to our love for God and our desire to see him glorified. That's how those religious folks in Jerusalem felt, those true patriots of Israel. They heard a voice telling them that, they, that all they held dear was under attack, that God himself was under attack. So they sprang into action. And the story continues. And now a different voice enters the story, an unexpected voice. Verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him! By the way, the exact words used about Jesus. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. Phew, that was a close call, right? (laughs) The mob was about to kill Paul, but someone came to the rescue. Someone with an authoritative voice. Whose voice was it? The secular government official. This guy wasn't a religious leader from among the Jews. He wasn't a Christian leader. He was from the government. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. A government official came to the rescue. Did he care about the theology of who was in what part of the temple when? Did he care whether God's name was being defamed? Probably not. He was just doing his job, maintaining order and fairness. And this is not the first time this has happened in the book of Acts. In chapter 19, it was the secular city clerk in Ephesus who stopped the mob that was attacking Paul's ministry partners. In chapter 18, it was the secular government guy in Corinth who told the religious people they were wasting his time trying to get Paul in trouble and threw their case out of court. In chapters 16 and 17, secular government officials dropped all charges against Paul in both Philippi and Thessalonica. And later in the book of Acts, we'll see governors and kings tell Paul in prison that he can go free if he wants. Heck, even Jesus had a secular official try to set him free. Throughout Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New, the people opposing God's work are less often those people out there and more often the people in here, inside the community of faith. And they're most often the people who've positioned themselves as the leaders within the community of faith. Often secular leaders and institutions are the ones God uses to correct his people. This is... Once again, an area where we have to pay close attention to the voices we are listening to. The loudest voices in the American evangelical world right now are the ones who have positioned themselves as leaders, are the voices telling us that our greatest threats come from the outside, from the evil secular world, and especially from the government. Never mind the fact that the government is mostly uninterested in our theology. Never mind the fact that if you live in Sacramento, a third of the people you know work for the government and are the government. They're just doing their jobs, maintaining order and fairness and ensuring public safety. And what kinds of things are those so-called Christian leaders telling us to fight for and against? They tell us to fight for keeping the things the way they've always been and to fight against expanding love your neighbor to include neighbors on the margins, neighbors whose lifestyles don't fit our traditional definitions, the kinds of neighbors Jesus embraced. They tell us to fight for our rights and against laying down our rights for the sake of others. And we're listening to those voices? We're listening to voices that tell us to do exactly the opposite of what Jesus told us to do. In one sense, it's astounding, but in another... It's not, not surprising at all. It's what we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. The real threats to the spread of the gospel, they almost always come from within the religious establishment. And again, it's it's tempting for us 21st century Gentiles to say, well, yeah, but that was those clueless Jews. They were the religious establishment. No, it was the Christians too, in fact, The leaders of the Christian church in the first century needed so much correction that we would hardly have ever heard of the Apostle Paul if it weren't for the continual need to straighten them out. And most of his letters were letters of correction, warning early Christ followers to beware of people in their midst, threats coming from among their own number. Remember that tearful goodbye to the leaders in Ephesus? Listen to what Paul's last words to those guys were in Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Like the old horror film, the threat is coming from inside the house. those threats, Paul warned of, weren't just threats of secular ethics from outside coming in and infiltrating the church. They were usually threats of religious judgmentalism, undermining the radical neighbor love that's supposed to characterize Christian communities. And when Paul did warn of secular values, they weren't just threats of naughty sexual ethics. They were just as often, maybe even more often, threats that came from secular values like power, and position, and self-interest, and taking economic advantage of people. So here in Acts 21, we have an outsider, a secular government official rescuing Paul from the religious insiders. And Paul gets one more chance to use his voice to try to get through to the crowd. And I find it fascinating to see the different ways he tries to use his voice. In verse 39, Paul points out that he comes from a position of privilege. He's not just a Jew, but a Roman citizen from a significant city. Paul wants to leverage his privilege to speak for the underprivileged, those Gentiles on the margins. And in verse 40, he also chooses to speak in Aramaic. That was the local Hebrew dialect spoken by the common people in Jerusalem. So in addition to leveraging his privilege, Paul also positions himself as just a regular guy. And chapter 21 ends on this cliffhanger. He said to them in Aramaic, dot, dot, dot. But we see in chapter 22 that Paul's tactic worked, sort of. When the people heard him speak their language, they quieted down and listened. They had been riled up by so much information, they had no idea what the truth was, who he even was. All they knew was that they were furious and they had to fight for God. When they heard that he spoke their language, the people listened to Paul's voice for a good long time as he laid out his life story, how he went from persecuting Jesus to preaching Jesus. But then they stopped listening the instant he used a dirty word, Gentiles. The instant they learned that Jesus had sent Paul to those dirty, naughty outsiders, they went ballistic and tried to kill him again. He made the mistake of telling them what they didn't want to hear. Like the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah before him, Paul spoke the truth in love and the religious insiders branded him a heretic. And the same thing happens today. There are pastors all over this country losing their jobs for daring to tell their congregations what they don't want to hear. They dare to tell their congregations exactly what Jesus told us, to love our neighbors the way the hated Samaritan did, loving those victimized by society and neglected by the religious establishment. They dare to counter those loudest voices in Christian America. Yes, we have tons of different voices vying for our attention, and it is vitally important that we listen to the right voices and silence the others. We need to listen to the voices that sound like Jesus, even when he tells us what we don't want to hear, especially when he tells us to die to ourselves, to share in his sufferings, to trust him, to rest in him. Not to be scared, very scared, but as he so often told his disciples, to fear not. Let's listen to that voice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you for loving us enough to tell us what we don't want to hear, to show us that mirror that sometimes reveals things we don't want to see about ourselves. Thank you for your radical example, Jesus, the way you lived, continually reaching out to those on the margins, to those the religious folks wanted to exclude. Lord, please open our eyes. Help us to see the world and the people in it through your eyes. Give us compassion for those that our flesh wants to hate. Help them to love them the way you love them, Lord. Help us to resist those loud voices that continually want to stoke our fears. Help us to fear not, to rest in you, to trust in you, to love you, and to live for you courageously. Help us to die to ourselves and live solely and wholeheartedly for you. In Jesus' name, amen.